Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Weekender Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at nreionline.com. Let's jump right into this week's top news, features, and blog posts. Welcome to the NREI Weekender with your host, David Bodemer. You know, normally we talk about the week's top news, but today David has actually brought in a special guest, and that is Nicole LaRusso. Nicole is the Director of Research and Analysis for CBRE and oversees all aspects of tri-state research with a keen focus on providing thought leadership for the region. Nicole has a deep background in real estate advisory and analysis and is a huge fan of podcasts, which makes it easy to have a podcast with her. Uh, So she's a huge fan and she lives in Jersey City with her husband and two children. Good morning, you two. How are you? Doing well. Well, thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for coming in, Nicole. I'm excited. David, you brought Nicole in. What are you guys talking about today? Well, thank you so much for for coming in and having a conversation. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So I know you do a ton of research. I uh, was particularly interested in having a discussion about uh, what's going on with uh, Manhattan retail. Yeah, it's definitely a, a hot topic these days, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously we're 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 based in Manhattan, so we sort of see this every day. I think, but it's probably it's got some national implications as well, just in terms of like probably echoes for for challenges here that may be happening elsewhere. Um, but I'm just kind of curious, you know, if you want to do some kind of what what are sort of the key headline or takeaways that that we have for the, of the market right now? Well, certainly retail is going through a very significant shift. And it's certainly not just specific to New York or Manhattan for that matter, but we are seeing it play out here. I would say um, the change in consumer habits and the uh, ascension of e-commerce is really affecting the street level retail experience. And certainly a lot of stores are finding that they can't make the economics work. And so are, we're seeing closings and things, but it's not all doom and gloom. And I think that's the part that people don't necessarily understand or appreciate. And we, we try to make sure that that story comes through. So I mean, looking at the report, you know, there are, you know, obviously you're tracking leasing, what's going on with rents, you know, occupancies, rents. And I also find it interesting that you, you break it down into a bunch of these key corridors in the city. What's some of the narratives that, that you are, that you have seen in, in terms of the leasing activity, the kind of deals are getting signed, the kind of tenants that are active in the marketplace, and maybe what's, what landlords are doing as well? Sure, there's actually a, a lot yeah. to talk about in there. So, I mean, I think when I think about retail first, I just like to start with kind of the, the big picture, which is um, when you think about Retail in Manhattan. I think that story starts in like 2010 when the market started to get really hot, and for about three or four years, we saw just an ever increasing amount of of rent uh, asking rents and tenants sort of lining up to bid outbid one another to get more space um, and to pay higher and higher rents. And of course, investors sort of anticipated that would never end, and so bidding up asking prices. and And by about the end of 2015 or so, sort of recognized that that had really gotten unsustainable. And so in 2016, we start seeing rents kind of starting to fall. And that coincided with, I think, the the um, real implications of e-commerce becoming a major force in retailing. And those two things combined together had a significant impact on retail in New York. And so we've seen since that, since that happened, rents have been on a fairly steady decline from that peak level. And that hasn't stopped 
yet. And we've certainly seen some of those closings, especially ones that have happened at a kind of national level, Mm -hmm. sort of playing out in New York as well. Um, On the other hand, New York still remains a very, very strong market on the demand side. There's just the number of people living here, the amount of money that they're making, tourism, all the things that drive a healthy retail market continue to be strong here. So you have these two different sort of uh, forces kind of cu- playing out at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing is that as some companies, some some retailers are recognizing that maybe the rent that they agreed to three or four years ago isn't something that they can maintain or they can't maintain as many stores as they had before. The strong underlying demand in this market is propelling other kinds of retailers up into the fore. And, and we're seeing that certainly on the food and beverage side fitness, uh, health and beauty. I think actually healthcare is kind of a really interesting emerging uh, retail um, or service, if you want to think retail Mm -hmm. really broadly. But um, that's one of those, we're seeing a lot of those kinds of tenants um, coming in, stepping in into spaces that might not have been available to them a few years ago. And is it, are these, we're talking about new concepts or concepts that are maybe just new to New York City? I'd say it's more on the new concept side, um, although some of these concepts, you know, fast casual is certainly not a new concept, right. but there's really been an explosion in that category of the different, uh, you know, different stores, different restaurants um, within that category. And so we're seeing a lot of that fast casual retailers opening here and also fitness. But um, on the one uh, coming back to the sort of new concept, mm-hmm. uh, I think the storefront healthcare provider is a new thing, sort of a recent trend maybe in the last few years and probably in your neighborhood as in mine. Every few months or so, I see another urgent care right. or even primary care provider stepping into a ground floor space that um, you know I wouldn't have seen a few years ago. So that's, an, I think, an example of something that's sort of a new concept that's really taking off now. And also do things like some of these dental services now seem to have storefronts like the Invisalign or some of these ones that, that seems like a little different than just a standard dentist seem to be filling in as well. Is that, is that, uh, are you seeing some of those too? I don't know that I have a sort of experience with that in particular, but I do think healthcare as a service and sort of a walk-in on demand, you know, that everyone wants whatever they want <laughs> immediately. And I right. think healthcare is one of those services you don't want to have to sign up uh, three weeks in advance to get a, a meeting with your doctor. You can just walk in to a doctor's office now in urgent care. And I think that the business that is building up around that is sort of recognizing that storefronts are an important way to grow that, grow that offering in the market. What about from the on the pressures from the owner side? So I, I sort of alluded to, so like say, Somebody bought the building, you know, within the past couple of years and had certain assumptions about the rents. Is that creating any pressures around, you know, given where market rents might be versus where maybe they wanted to pencil things out? Is that creating any tensions in terms of like how, how, how deals are getting done? It absolutely is. And I think that's one of the reasons why, uh, excuse me, why, one of the reasons why it's hard for um, rents to adjust kind of in real time is when an owner or an investor buys a property, especially if they get debt or a mortgage, they promise or they, they build that purchase on an expectation of revenue. And if they sign a lease at substantially below mm-hmm. what that revenue was, well, then they might be on the hook to put more cash into the deal. Otherwise, they're you know, in default of their their loan agreement with that, that said, you know, you have to have a 20 percent, 80 percent, right? 20 percent equity to 80 percent loan. So um, I think just just like in the in the housing mm-hmm. crisis, it's a similar situation. So that has made 
some landlords very hesitant to accept lower rents. And that's why we maybe see some prolonged vacancies in the market. They just, they don't want to give back the asset or they don't want to have to go in for more cash. And if they can continue to carry it on an operating basis before, without having to um, accept a lower rent and change the valuation essentially of the property, then they'll do that as long as they can. But they will, they're also trying to, some landlords are, you know, the asking rent remains maybe high, but they're putting more cash making more cash available to the tenant if they will take the space. They're very negotiable at this Mm -hmm. point and trying to do a lot of things uh, in order to get tenants uh, to sign on. In terms of um, looking at some of the corridors around the city, I think, you know, in the report, there are a number of of main ones identified. Are there any differences in how some of those are performing or is is, is the narrative fairly consistent throughout Manhattan? Um, I mean, I think every corridor has been under pressure to, you know, adjust rents to the sort of new normal. But some uh, have been under more pressure than others. And I think the ones where rents rose in that time period between 2010 and 2015, where the rents really got um, heated mm-hmm. and, and rose the most, those are the ones that have had the most pressure. Um, I think Madison Avenue is, is uh, particularly Upper Madison, has been one of the most that has had to, you know, really adjust to new circumstances. And, and we're, we've seen both rents declining fairly considerably in that area and also an increase in availabilities. So more spaces available. And, you know, that's, I think that's just a lot of those buildings turned over um, in that period of where rents were increasing. And so it's sort of been a confluence of challenges that have made um, that market a little bit uh, harder hit, let's say, from a a vacancy and a pricing standpoint. Uh, whereas some markets, you know, uh, the downtown market is mm-hmm. one that's been relatively uh, stable through this period. And in part, it was not, um, you know, 2010, 2015 was a time where the downtown uh, financial district area around the World Trade Center was still kind of up and coming. And you didn't see that really dramatic rise in rents. And so that area has been able to kind of weather um, weather this recent storm a little bit better in terms of less pressure on rents. In fact, I think it's been a pretty steady increase even in recent years. In pricing, so those are sort of the tale of tale of two uh, corridors, perhaps. Um, yeah. But I think those the sort of examples of um, the the more their the rents were under pressure, were, were escalating, the more pressure there's been to to adjust. Uh, so also in, recently we had the addition of Hudson Yards, which I think a lot of people have been paying attention to. So in terms of the market, that added some more space that needed to be filled. But it seems like it added some interesting tenants to the city, like for having like our first Neiman Marcus. Do you have any thoughts on on that project and, and any kind of echo effects that's going to have for, for the rest of the market? Yeah, I think it's been very highly anticipated and closely watched. It certainly um, seemed like a bold move a few years ago when they, or more than a few, a decade ago and or so when they, it was proposed and now opening in this environment definitely seems like even maybe a bolder move than we might have thought. But on the other hand, I think it's been considered fairly successful. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's still very early days, but I think very well, really embraced. And that's an area that in a way is sort of a microcosm of larger New York, but I think really shows that as you have growth in residential, you have growth in office, Mm -hmm. there's been tremendous amounts of development on both of those. Plus you have public amenities, retail, you really need to have retail. It needs to be there for that area to thrive. And I think the developers in that area really understand that and really wanted to put a special retail set of amenities there for, to help that area really become a really fully fledged 
successful neighborhood within the context of New York where, you know, you really can't have a dynamic, exciting New York experience if you don't have great food, you don't have mm-hmm. fantastic shopping, lots of uh, arts and cultural things going on within a short walk. And so Hudson Yards, that whole area really now has that with the opening of the shopping um, retail there. And it seems like an interesting project informed a, a bit by, I guess, like the era we live in, in terms of like the, the design of it. it. It seems to have a lot a lot of focus on on being like an Instagrammable project. And it, it's brought in some restaurant concepts or, or expanded some that, that are up and coming or, or both like, a, I think of a blend of the, of the city and some national ones. So it just, it sort of seems like an interesting, I mean, from my perspective, an interesting project to watch to see how it does and maybe how it how it influences uh, some other developments of this scale, maybe here and elsewhere. Yeah, I think one of the things that they've really embraced there seems to be the idea of experiential, right? Yeah. It's, it's not just about shopping. You can shop anywhere. You can shop. You don't have to be in the store to shop. And so what drives people to show up at the store or show up in a place is what's the experience they're going to have there that they can't have at home or they can't have walking down the street while they're, uh, you know, on their mobile device doing whatever they, you know, you need to be in the place. There needs to be a reason why you want to be in that place. And so I think what's really, and, and the concept that they're providing there has to be something that you can't get anywhere else. And so I think they're doing they're doing that really well. And, and if you, you know, I was just perusing the, the website on my way over here and I thought, you know, it's like, there's all these different um, happenings right. that they're advertising, not just in the whole, in the space itself, but each store has its own special happenings. There's an, a, a reason to come, even if you were here two weeks ago, there's a new reason to show up in the store. And, and I think that is a trend that we're seeing. Obviously it's not just in the shops at Hudson Yards, but it's it's really everywhere. And so why as a customer, as a consumer, do I want to go to that place? It's because I'm going to have some sort of experience, some inter- interaction with a product or other people that I can't have on my own. And that I think they're doing a really good job of that. So you had another report that's another about the New York retail market that looks specifically at F&B. And I was struck by how much money we spend on, on food and beverage in, in in the city. I think that the number was New Yorkers spend 130% more on food outside the home than their peers in the rest of the, of the United States. And that equates to over $8,000 per year on food outside the home compared to 3,500 on average in the rest of the country, which I think, you know, you, you mentioned before how one of the, uh, I think one of the tenant categories that, that, that's been signing deals is FNB. I guess that sort of speaks to one of the reasons that speaks to why is is uh, New Yorkers' pension for for spending like this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think you know if anyone who's lived in a New York apartment probably can attest that it's not necessarily set up for you to be a gourmet. And uh, I I've seen a few apartments that have little more than a like a mini fridge and a sink, and that's pretty much all the space you have to cook. Um, and so New Yorkers really do like to be out and about, and they like to um, part of the reason people live here, and certainly a big reason why people visit is for the food scene. And I think that is certainly contributes to why New Yorkers spend more. Obviously, everything's more expensive in New York, so you, there's that factor too. But there's just more opportunity and more inclination to dine out. But also, I think we're seeing uh, generally a, a trend among, particularly among younger people, millennials, is really wanting to s- spend their money on experiences. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about that experiential kind of concept in retailing and. Food is the ultimate experience in a lot of ways. And you certainly can't, there's no substitute for eating on the internet, right? So you really have to, um, you know, and, and going out 
um, and socializing, Instagramming what you're eating. Um, all of that is sort of part of the social scene for a lot of uh, young people. And they'd rather spend their money on that than on material possessions. And so we're seeing a shift in spending in that direction too. And so all these things together, kind of helping to support that food and beverage business. Um, and certainly in New York, um, one other thing I think it's really interesting about the expansion of food and beverage concepts here in the city is that you know, historically retail uh, landlords, excuse me, didn't love the idea of having food uh, at, in their store, in their buildings. Mm-hmm. That, you know, there are lots of reasons why you might not like that. But as other retailers have kind of receded uh-huh. in terms of demand, it's really created an opening for food and beverage. And so now we're seeing places that might not have been available to food and beverage operators. Now landlords are happy to take them. And so that's given, a, it's created more opportunity for those, all those new concepts that are developing too, to expand. That's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it makes sense on all the levels why maybe you wouldn't have wanted it in the past, but why it may be attractive now. Um, and then, I, I mean, I guess also tied to both the experiential is the, I mean, number the number of um, delivery services we have available in New York City. We have like Caviar, Uber Eats, Seamless. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. And then it, it seems like I know like when I go into some of these places now, there's a lot even more signage up that for like even maybe a special line or a special part of the counter for the delivery services to come in to pick up the food. So it seems because it seems like that's. A grow, maybe a growing percentage of the the business out of the space is not is in addition to maybe the, the, the higher traffic they may be getting from people eating in is also just this proliferation of, of an availability to to get pretty much everything delivered to you now. I I totally agree. I'm I'm sort of baffled um, every time I walk into a, a new restaurant. There's it's like a new service that I'm supposed to be I should have the app for, um, and I, I kind of can't keep track of them all. But I agree, and I think that's it. Really touches on um, a larger trend that's not just um, present in food and beverage, but something we call omni-channel, which uh-huh. is really this concept of um, the consumer wants to be able to interact with the brand or the retailer in uh, sort of seamlessly across all channels. So that's online, that's mobile, that's in the store. And um, you're certainly seeing this uh, play out uh, in restaurants and in this, particularly the fast, casual, mm-hmm. quick service business where high season Starbucks, where people are able to place their order online right. on their phone. And then there's a separate area, sort of separate concierge and a separate fulfillment area where they have people that are just fulfilling mobile orders. There's a, there's a special line when you come into the store and that's um, where you can pick up your merchandise. And I'm seeing that in, as I said, I'm seeing it in Starbucks. I'm seeing it in Dig In. I'm seeing it in lots of fast casual locations, but I'm also seeing it in Macy's. Right. I'm seeing it in lots of different places where retailers have had to create within the brick and mortar presence. They have to create that sort of space for the digital and the mobile um, sales channel to operate. Right. And I definitely seeing that on the food and beverage side for sure. Yeah. So it's interesting how, so it's like we, we talk about you know, online retail is a force and, and, and I think maybe you have a tendency just to think about it as a percentage of sales. But in this case, it's actually causing literal reconfigurations of, of the physical spaces because of the way that we use these services now. A successful retailer is really going to embrace all, all parts of that omni-channel um, strategy. So they're going to have a brick and mortar presence. They're going to have a mobile presence. They're going to have an online presence and they're going to figure out how to create an experience for the customer that's seamless among all of those channels. And, and that in that way, online and mobile really enhances the overall business. It doesn't detract from 
the brick and mortar presence, but it really enhances that and integrates them together. And that's where we're seeing the most success among retailers today. And just like on that thought too, for omni-channel retailers, it seems like also it's not necessarily one direction or another, right? Like some some retailers that have traditionally been brick and mortar have become really good at at incorporating, you know, becoming omni-channel. And on the flip side, it seems like, you know, I we see things that maybe started as an online retailer now have physical spaces. Uh, I, I mean, I feel like I see that in New York with like Indochino or some some of the some of these services that started maybe as a place you get something online, now you have a showroom. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned that because we we call it clicks to bricks. I'm Mm -hmm. sure there's lots of other euphemisms for it, but uh, I think that's true. And I think a lot of uh, retailers that got their start online recognize that there's a limit to how much they can do from a marketing um, and customer engagement standpoint with and, and volume of sales ultimately um, if they don't have a physical presence. And if you're going to have a physical presence, you want it to put that in the place with the most foot traffic and the most visibility. So New York has been sort of the epicenter of that clicks to bricks phenomenon. In particular, we see a lot of those tenants taking space in places like Grand Central and Soho where there's just a tremendous amount of foot traffic and visibility. And that's right. We're Bonobos is one. Uh, I think mm-hmm. you mentioned Indochino. Warby Parker got their start mm-hmm. right online. So people forget that because we're sort of used to seeing right. the storefronts popping yeah, up everywhere. Sure. But more and more of them are, or they experiment with pop-ups as a sort of test the concept. But I think that's true that even online retailers recognize that there's a value to having a storefront, maybe selectively mm-hmm. in a, a sort of smaller and manageable way, but as a way of further engaging and growing their customer base and their overall sales volume. And it seems like historically New York has sometimes been like an incubator market for people to even test this stuff out, right? Absolutely. Often a first market for people, you know, either coming internationally or doing this kind of thing. So it is, I think it is uh, interesting to, to talk about like what's, you know, how that's happening there. Yeah, it's an expensive place to operate, right. but there's a reason for that because it's a very lucrative place to operate too. And if you have the right concept or you think you do and you want to test it, this is really a popular place to try that out. Just to make another like quick pivot, we were talking. You know, we talked a little bit in depth about F and B and how and how they've been doing. Um, but in terms of some of the like maybe looking at some of the other tenant types, where are there any other ones that we should pull out at, that that have stories that we should be talking about? Yeah, I think actually one of the most um, interesting ones is fitness. Uh-huh. There's sort of concepts up and down the, the from the luxury end to the lower end, but. Fitness is sort of here to stay and growing and trying to take smaller formats, some of them taking larger formats, um, integrating them with health or integrating them with food or integrating them with attire too. So there's there's a really versatile concept and we're seeing a lot of fitness. I think every quarter we recognize it's another really strong category of fitness. And I think that goes along with the F&B trend is that mm-hmm. sort of you can't fitness. Well, I guess you can fitness a little bit online, but it's, <laughs> it helps to fitness uh, in a place where you can um, exercise with other people. And obviously there's that whole Peloton yeah. phenomenon, I, but even Peloton has right. studios, right? So I think that just goes to show there's that real power in the place and participating with other people. I've gotten sucked into the Peloton phenomenon myself. So, uh, but yeah, they have that great showrooms and or at least one, one I don't really, I'm not sure if they have more than I know they have the big studio where they film the classes, but I thought they may even had a couple smaller showrooms in the city, if I'm not mistaken. But there's some of these other ones that are now where it seems like they're trying to piggyback off of that model and, you know, and, and do have their own device that's online, but the showroom in the city to their own version you know, of omnichannel. Yeah. So it's all it all it all kind of it all kind of resonates. But then outside fitness, are there are there other store other highlights? 
Um, one of the things I think has been maybe a little underappreciated has been the growth of, um, you know, we have fast casual on the food side, but there's also fast fashion okay. and it usually um, discount fashion. And so whether it's the Target or Marshalls or TJ Maxx or H&M and Zara, mm -hmm. the sort of large format, lower price point that offer in particular a fashion concept, I think the idea is that uh, customers really love to see what great new affordable clothing trend is going to be available to them and they, they have a reason to come into the store often. And so those retailers, those apparel retailers are actually doing quite well. And many of them have expanded in, in New York in the last few years. And, you know, we're sitting here, it's um, about halfway through 2019. You know, the, we've been talking about what's been happening so far. You see, doing a little bit of forecasting, I mean, obviously things can always change, but what are we thinking about for the rest of the year? More, just kind of more of the same, any reason to think of that we're, that there may be any big shifts coming? I, mean, I think that we're getting close to the right pricing structure. You know, I don't think, I think the biggest pricing drops in terms of the rent side are probably behind us at okay. this point. Maybe that's wishful thinking, but I, I feel pretty confident that that's true and starting to see that pricing leveling out a little bit. Um, I think the demand has been strong um, and we are seeing a lot of interest among tenants to sign deals. So I think that, you know, we're, it might not be, we haven't, might not have uh, covered the whole readjustment of the market, but I think we are getting close. And I think we're sort of looking forward to more stability on retail into the future. Well, I want to thank you for coming in and talking about all these highlights in the New York retail market. Uh, your insights are you're fabulous. It's been great talking to you. And thanks, thanks again. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. Guys, thank you. This was a great podcast. Nicole, I'm I'm thinking about that, uh, the online fitness thing. You sure that's not going to take off? Just the web, web, webinar fitnesses or something? I, I think if your I kids... can watch someone exercise for me on oh. the internet, I'd be very happy. If you that can, would, you would, can figure out how to lose weight. I'm your first customer. And I think your kids <laughs> would probably agree with me that uh, online ice cream shops, they're, they kind of suck too. So uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm all about the physical location with the actual ice cream. So, all right. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was great. You bet. And thank you all for listening to the NREI Weekender with your host, David Bodemer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at the NREI Weekender, this is Eric Johnson inviting you back next week for all the news that matters to you. And we'll see you soon. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of NERI Informa. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. 